0: Karl Barth was one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. For more than 50 years, a copy of a painting by Matthias Grunewald hung behind his desk. Grunewald completed his famous Eisenheim altarpiece somewhere around the year 1515. It is a complex system of panels intended for the altar at the monastery in Eisenheim, Germany a place where monks dedicated to Saint Anthony ran a hospital that was devoted to the sick and the dying. The copy that hung above Bart's desk was that of the crucifixion scene in Grunewald's masterpiece. It is a realistic, grim representation of the crucifixion. In the center, the tortured and contorted body of Christ hangs on the cross. To one side of the cross, Gunnivalg depicts the trio of Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and the disciple John into whose care Jesus placed his mother Mary. On the other side of the crucified Christ we find John the Baptist, Bible in his left hand, while the index finger of his right hand points to Christ hanging on the cross. One of his feet points towards us, Those of us who gaze upon this painting, while the other points to Jesus. It's as if, even through his stance, John the Baptist draws us in and then turns our attention to the one on the cross. John's size in the painting is smaller than that of Christ, and these words of Scripture are found behind John's arm He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the John the Baptist we find in the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John. It's a different image of John the Baptist than we see in the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There we find John the Baptizer, baptizing hundreds of people in the Jordan River, including Jesus himself. Or John the prophet, (coughs) clothed with camel hair, a leather belt around his waist, eating locusts and wild honey, a throwback to the days of the great prophet Elijah. Or in Luke, we find John the seeker, who sends two of his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one to come, or are we to wait for another? These strong character depictions of John the Baptist give way in the fourth gospel to a John the Baptist that is reduced, it's been said, to a mere road sign. This is a John the Baptist who simply stands and points to Christ. We see it in today's gospel reading. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself is not the light, but he came to testify to the light. As John testifies to the light, every inquiry that comes his way from the priests and the Levites, they all get redirected to the one who is coming after him. I am not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, John says. Instead, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. In the Gospel of John the Evangelist, this John, John the Baptist, is reduced to a voice that heralds the coming of one much greater than himself. It's a John the Baptist that, like the one in Grunwald's painting, always points away from himself. As Karl Barth wrote, John the Baptist is no independent figure. He belongs entirely to Christ. He is only there to collect and give back the light that falls upon him by the one and only Christ. Here we find an important reminder during the season of Advent. As much as Advent calls us to go deep inside ourselves, to be self-reflective, it also calls us outward and beyond ourselves. Just as John the Baptist stands pointing to Christ, And John, the writer of this fourth gospel, tells us the story of Jesus in ways that point to him being the Messiah. So, too, are we to bear witness to Christ. We are called to stand in the world and testify to the light that shines in the midst of darkness, naming it each and every time we find it. We are each called to be our own version of John the Baptist. I have to confess, though, that I am a little uneasy with the way Matthias Grunewald, Karl Barth, and even scripture itself all depict John the Baptist's testimony as only pointing away from himself. There may be a very practical reason for that when it comes to scripture. Many commentaries speculate that in some parts of the early church the followers of John the Baptist and the followers of Jesus were in competition with one another. In fact, John the Baptist may have actually made a larger imprint on Jewish life and had a greater following than Jesus did for a significant part of the first century. The first century Jewish historian Josephus writes a lot more about John the Baptist than he does about the carpenter from Nazareth. So I can understand why it might have been important in the early church to have John the Baptist actually proclaim, as he does two chapters after today's gospel reading, He must increase, but I must decrease. I can understand why it was necessary for all the Gospel writers to explicitly state that John was not the Messiah. I can maybe even understand why John the Evangelist, the writer of the fourth Gospel, makes John the prophet into merely one of those signs on the edge of the road with blinking lights and a big arrow, Messiah this way, pointing to Jesus. I get what might be going on here for the early church. But there's an inherent danger in speaking of John the Baptist's mission, or of our mission, as one that requires the diminution or reduction of ourselves. He must increase, but I must decrease. When John the Baptist points beyond himself, it may seem as if he becomes less significant in his own right, when John the Baptist testifies to the great light breaking into the world, it may seem as if he becomes less who he really is. But here's the thing. The eye that must decrease when John the Baptist points to Jesus, that eye is the false self, not the true self. So let me say a few words about false and true selves. The false self understands and defines itself in isolation, separate from love and relationship and God. The false self is all about labels and finding our own identity. It's about what we do, what we drive, where we live, how successful we are, how needed we are. The false self may tell us that we are wonderful, or it may tell us that we are horrible, Either way, it misses who we are in the deepest core of our being. On the other hand, the true self, in the words of Richard Rohr, the true self is who we are in God and who God is in us. And it opens us up to incredible spaciousness. Rohr writes, when you learn to live in your true self, you live there with everyone and everything else too. Any language of exclusion or superiority no longer makes sense to you. Inside your true self, you know that you're not alone, and you foundationally belong to God and the universe. You no longer have to work to feel important. You are intrinsically important, and it has all been done unto you just as it was with Mary, who made no claims of worthiness or unworthiness. In redirecting the light and attention toward Jesus, John the Baptist becomes that which he most truly is. In pouring himself out in witness, he finds himself in connection with God and with those to whom he is sent. There is no zero-sum equation in John's relationship with Jesus. During the season of Advent, we find that we too are called to be a John the Baptist of sorts, to testify to the light, even to be a way in which the light is made manifest. As we see in our reading from Isaiah, this is a call to pour ourselves out in service, to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, It is a call to love deeply and give generously. It is a call to live from our true selves, from who we are in God and who God is in us. It is a call to live from the place within us that knows that there is no zero-sum equation when it comes to love. When the dignity, uniqueness, and beauty of one individual is cherished, we are all made richer and fuller for it we all increase. For us, as for John the Baptist, how we testify to the light and how we become most fully ourselves, that's really one and the same question. Today we celebrate the marriage of Catherine Parker and Michael Land. Michael and Catherine, in a few minutes you will say your vows. You will promise to love, comfort, honor, and keep one another as long as you both shall live, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. You will promise to pour yourselves out for one another. And trust me, that's going to be a lot easier to do on some days than on others. But don't worry that it will diminish who you are. Instead, through this kind of love, you will find your truest selves. When one of you hurts, the other will hurt. When one of you is filled with joy, the other will taste joy as well. When one of you increases, you will both increase. This kind of love will be hard work. It will take time, and it will be a blessing beyond all your imaginings. For through it all, you will catch a glimpse of what it means for God to love you, us, and the whole world, unconditionally and forever. That's why marriage is a sacrament in the church. That's why any deep relationship, be that a partnership, be that a deep friendship, be that a parent-child relationship, any deep relationship is a means through which we experience God's grace and love. Like John the Baptist, it points to and participates in that great love from which all love flows.